Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing at our best when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Now, I am super excited for this conversation. Our guest this episode is Kim Casey Campbell. Kim is a retired colonel serving in the Air Force for 24 years as a fighter pilot and a senior leader. She was the director of the Center for Character and Leadership Development at the Air Force Academy and is the author of Flying in the Face of Fear, a Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage. Now, I legitimately love this book. I think there's so much stuff in here that's of absolute importance if you're the type of person listening to this podcast, which I guess is circular because you wouldn't hear my recommendation if you're not. But in any case, you should go out and read this book. I think it's amazing. And it was an awesome story. But more than that, there's so much in here about how to perform, how to lead, and how to train folks. And I'm, I'm just so excited to get into this. Kim, thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Amazing. So for folks that don't already know a little bit about your background or are fanboying out as much as I am for the moment, can you just give people a quick 30,000 foot overview of who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, I recently just retired from the Air Force. I spent 24 years serving as a fighter pilot, A-10 pilot, but I also spent a lot of time leading teams. You can only fly so much and then they ask other things of you. So I spent time leading teams, both large and small teams. My Probably my biggest assignment, if you will, was as a group commander responsible for more than a thousand personnel down in South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. I say biggest assignment because it was probably full of my biggest challenges in terms of leadership, where a lot was demanded upon me and where I did more than I think I probably was capable of in many times. As you mentioned, I finished out my career at the Air Force Academy, which is where I started my career. So it was fun to go back, felt a little bit like life came full circle for me, but in a place where I could give back and help really inspire and influence this next generation of leaders. So a fantastic way to close out my career, a fantastic way to feel like I could give back and share some of those lessons that I learned along the way. And you tell a lot of the story in the book about sort of the overcoming of obstacles along the way at all sorts of different points and all sorts of levels. But I'm really curious, and maybe this was at the Air Force Academy, but when did you start thinking about performing under pressure sort of as its own thing, separate from the skills that you're learning alongside it? I think it probably starts maybe even before the Air Force Academy when I first started flying. And I think, you know, I started as a 16 year old in a Cessna. And I think I personally put a lot of pressure on myself because I really wanted to do well. I knew that I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, become a fighter pilot. I had this ultimate goal of someday going on to become an astronaut, still a goal. But I, I really put a lot of pressure on myself to perform. And I, I didn't do it well. I'm saying I started learning it because I wasn't doing it well. I mean, I was think I was more stressed and worried, and that just created its own set of problems. But that's where I really started focusing on it, thinking about it. I think probably the Air Force Academy pilot training and beyond is where they actually give you skills to perform under pressure versus just trying to figure it out on your own. And those early conversations, and, and maybe these are conversations where you're you know, learning to fly a Cessna, or maybe these are conversations where you're more in the Air Force Academy. How did you think about it? Was it a more like a tactical problem? Like, okay, I have to do X, Y, and Z in the same way I have to change an instrument on the plane. I'm sorry, I know very little about flying, so you'll forgive my you know, crappy metaphors as we keep going, but you have to change little things in order to change the direction you're going? Or was it more of a, I need to become a different human being in order to do this? I think it was more about 
preparation to handle the stress. And it was changing my mindset, changing my thinking about don't just show up and hope it's all going to work out, which, you know, as a teenager, I have kids too, and I see them do this sometimes and we're working on it. But I think I realized very quickly that for me to be able to handle stress, I had to take a step back and prepare for it before it happened. And we were taught very early on in our training this concept called chair flying. And chair flying is what it's a lot of what it sounds like where you sit in a chair. We had a diagram of a cockpit plastered up on the wall, and we would go through critical steps just visualizing all of those critical steps, radio calls, different parameters, things that we needed to do. And we would do that generally the night before the mission. And then when I showed up the next morning, I actually felt less stressed because it was like, oh, I I did that last night. I practiced it, even if it was in my chair sitting in 1G and just this, you know, in, in my bedroom at the time. But that helped me deal with the stress and the worry because it was like I had seen it before and I could visualize it. I knew more of what to do in that moment, even though once I'm in the air and now there's lots of things going on and I feel more pressure and more stress, I could at least fall back on the visualization that I had done the night before. That to me was a turning point really for the rest of my life because I've learned that when I feel that stress or worry, the, the key is I need to do, put in the work. I need to prepare in advance sure. so that I feel it's hard to make the stress go away or the worry go away, but I feel better about it. I feel like I can handle it better. So we've talked a lot on the, the podcast before about visualization and mental simulation, right? Now, this is an incredibly powerful tool that's used all across the board, across different disciplines. And I, I think there's a couple of interesting technical things that I'm really curious your take on. So one of the things that previous guests have talked about is the difference between visualizing in first person and visualizing in third person. And specifically, they look for edges where their mental simulation tends to switch camera angle in one sense or another and use that as a a sort of a grafting point to be like, okay, that's part of what I need to study a little bit more. Did you have anything like that? Where like, where did you look for the edges where your visualization would break down? Well, I think that's just it, right? If, If I'm going through something and I'm pausing and it's not flowing smoothly and I can't Mm -hmm. remember the numbers, right? There's probably numbers associated with lots of different career fields, you know, the numbers, that next step, the thing that I'm supposed to do when that starts breaking down, I would have my notebook next to me and just start taking those notes. I need to get back in the books and study those numbers, study that radio call. So for me, it was very much a, if this isn't flowing smoothly, because in the airplane, There's not really a pause button. There's not really like, oh, wait, I'm just going to take that step and I'm going to open my book. And yes, we can open a checklist, but I can't. It's hard to go look things up. And so if it wasn't flowing smoothly for me, and for me, it was everything was first person. This is me in the airplane. A lot of the airplanes I flew, there was not even an instructor in the seat next to me. And so it was all about if I can't get this right now myself, then that means I need to go back in the books and study a little bit more so that it's more familiar. Because that repeated exposure meant that I felt more familiar. It felt more comfortable. Over time, I felt more competent. And then that just created more confidence as well. That makes sense to me when I think now about when I'm performing a skill in the emergency department, right? I have, I'm getting ready to intubate somebody or I'm getting ready to run a resuscitation. I have done it enough that I understand what it should feel like. And I can run it in my mind beforehand. I can anticipate problems. I can find unnecessary opportunities for failure. 
and I can feel the rough versus the smooth edges in there, right? If that makes sense, you, you know where you need extra work. A challenge that my the junior doctors, the residents that I end up teaching quite a bit often talk about is like, well, what if I've never done it before? What if I don't know what it's supposed to feel like? So what was that like for you when you were starting, when maybe you didn't have the the depth of experience to fall back on for what what right was? And then it's kind of scary that first time I think back, you know, taking off in an airplane for the first time. I'm sure there's similar thoughts of like, sure. what if this goes wrong? You know, what if I do something wrong? You know, it can be disastrous consequences. But I think even the preparation, even the if I could get muscle memory as well of actually like being in not just the paper on the wall, but we also had simulators where we can now move our hands and do those things, that was also helpful. So even though I hadn't actually taken off in the airplane, a real airplane before, I had been kind of in that cockpit environment where I could touch the switches and and move things around. And then I had kind of that almost calming muscle memory of this is the way it works. There's still the first time though. And yeah. <laughs> that first time is just it is a little bit scary because we want to do it right. We put pressure on ourselves to perform. And and it's also exciting. Like finally, we're doing that one thing that we've been training to do and now we get to do it. And it's just having the confidence that you put in the work, that you've got this, you know, that you're ready for it. And I think in a lot of these cases, certainly in mine, I had an instructor that was tucked in behind me or sitting in the seat next to me, depending upon the airplane somebody that will have your back, you know, somebody that will at least guide that first time, but it's still hard. There's there's yeah. a kind of this nervousness that's going to be there. And if you put in the work, then it's having the confidence that you've put in the work and you know what to do. And once the first time's done, then it's like, ah, I've done this before. There's so many similarities in there, right? I was very lucky to have a lot of my first passes at things done with more senior doctors standing over my shoulder, sort of, you know, guiding me through it, right? That's part of the principle of how we operate in training people to become emergency doctors, right? Graduated responsibility. We talk a lot about the wedge model, the application of gradual pressure. We also, though, run into situations where you've just never done a thing before, right? And so there's this sense of, I guess you'd call it, I don't actually know if it's near transfer or far transfer, but basically it's the idea that, okay, I may not have done this, but I've done other hard things. And once you build up this database of hard things that you've gone through your first time, it becomes in some sense easier to do that next hard thing, even if you're yes. not doing it with a trainer, with a person through it. So part of the skills we end up having to teach folks is a technical skill, right? How do you land a plane? How do you intubate somebody? Part of them though is this meta skill of learning to do hard things for the first time. And yeah. I think we're well, at least on my end of the world, we're a lot better at teaching that first thing than we are the second thing. We're a lot better at the technical skill of intubating than we are teaching the idea of how to do a hard thing over and over again. I'm curious in your universe, how explicit was that, right? Are you guys talking about the meta skills as you're training the technical skills too? Yes, um, we're talking about all of it. And that's exactly it. I think every time you do something hard in your life, it prepares you for the next hard thing. And eventually there's this one ultimate moment of like, I've never done this before. I never thought this would happen. I never thought that it was going to be me in this moment. But here I am. And I hope I can perform at my best. But all those things that I've done in my life led me to this point that I am capable of doing something hard, something that maybe I didn't even think I was capable of doing. 
And I think for us specifically in flying the A-10, because the A-10 is a close air support platform, it means that our role is to support the troops on the ground, which means there isn't really a script on every mission. We show up to some coordinates on the ground with a radio frequency of how to talk to our ground troops. And then we learn what is happening. You know, we find out the situation and we then, as the flight lead leading the formation, have to be able to come up with the plan of action. And so when we're training, we try to put our students and those upgrading to new positions through a lot of different scenarios. But inevitably, when it comes time to actually do it, you're going to find yourself in a situation that I didn't really plan for this one or I didn't really, this didn't come up. Uh, It's sometimes you can do all of those things to create these really difficult, challenging environments. And in the end, you're still going to have a new challenging environment that you actually have to operate in. And all of the training, everything that you've done, the flexibility to make decisions under pressure, to be creative and innovative with solutions, well, now it's time. And now you're put on the spot to try to do that. But we do at least try to teach people to be flexible, to think on the spot. We might even brief to one mission. And then we, after about 10 minutes into the flight, we'll just say, hey, guess what? You thought this was going to happen today? Well, actually, we're going to go do this. You know, it's a little, as the receiving end, it's a little nerve wracking to be on that end of like, this isn't what I planned for. But then it's just, it helps your mind be able to adapt and perform under stress because you're like, I'm flexible. I can do this. We did a lot of that in our training, and then it meant when it came time to do that for real in combat, you know, there are some really sketchy, scary situations that I never thought I would be in, but I felt at least confident in my skills of being able to pull from different past experiences so that I could do that one hard thing. Yeah. I'm I'm reading Finite and Infinite Games by James Carse, and I happen to have this sitting right next to me, and there's this quote in it that Because to be prepared against surprise is to be trained. To be prepared for surprise is to be educated. That just like struck me so much exactly with what you're saying, right? Like, can we train you to do the things and buffer against surprise? Can we eliminate unnecessary opportunities for failure? Can we make you more likely to succeed? But ultimately, can we train you on how to be surprised and be okay with it? Yeah. And that's such a common thread among what you're describing and and in my world as well, right? Which is that you have to produce people that have to operate without a script being there. You're never going to be with them when they're actually doing the things when they're out in the world. It's the actual skills that they need to be able to have, but it is also a mindset and the belief and being flexible and adaptable and and being able to handle when things don't go according to plan. And quite honestly, we have seen pilots work to go through the A-10 training and they've got the skills. You know, they can do the skills. When we say this is what we're going to do, they're very good at doing that. But they really there are some pilots who just struggle with the flexibility of being able to adapt. And it just takes work. It takes work over time. And eventually you either have to be able to get there or you can't. That's actually like very fascinating and not obvious to me when I sit down and think about it, right? Because like you could imagine a universe a little different than ours where your ability to flex on things is just proportional to your ability to do the thing in general, right? Where those two skill sets tracked each other perfectly. But that's not actually the universe we live in, right? And I, I see that in the doctors I'm training too. And I see that in myself when I look back at like me as a junior, right? Oh, yeah. I, like my development about flexibility and my development about skills or Man, even when I think about, you know, 
trying to apply a move in jujitsu or something, right? The ability to do it versus the ability to flex around it are really different. And I think that there's like the more I've gone on in my career, the more focus I end up placing on training that second piece of it, on training that flexibility and on figuring out how that is. We certainly had some of that when I was coming up. They would run us through crazy surprises or, okay, now you're going to do this blindfolded or, oh, actually, just kidding. This thing that you thought was a simulation about a trauma is actually a fire in a chemical plant and it's about deconning your troops. Like, how are you going to figure this out? Right. I'm very lucky to have been exposed to that. But I think that's such a fascinating thing to train. And there's a couple of threads that came out of your book that I, I want to connect to that. But we're going to have to take a bit of a detour in order to do that, which is to go back to something you said, which was finding yourselves in situations where you really have to apply knowledge under pressure that you never thought you'd be doing. And you have this just stunningly amazing story about this, which I, I don't want to take the thunder away from. So you should read the book and you should go into it. Can you give us the vague details of your trip yeah, back? Yeah, the 32nd version, I guess, if yeah. I was, gosh, and it's been 20 years, but this mission was in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003. And I was a new wingman in the squadron. So not a whole lot of time under my belt. Fairly young and inexperienced, but I had finished my training. I was deemed combat mission ready which meant that when 9-11 happened and the follow-on to Afghanistan and Iraq, we deployed. So I deployed very quickly and found myself over Baghdad doing a close air support mission, which is exactly what we are trained to do and very similar to a lot of the training I had experienced. And then as we were supporting the ground troops, my airplane was hit with a surface-to-air missile. That is not something that you ever expect that uh, will happen to you. I think, you know, we talked about it. We briefed. I probably had practiced it at some point before as much as you can practice something like that. But in that moment, uh, when your airplane is plunging to the ground completely out of control, I did. I, I fell back on my training. I went right back into a lot of the training and, and things that I had done in a simulator previously. But there's nothing that quite prepares you to being in that life or death situation of being kind of the pressure or the time slows down and all the things that are kind of bombarding your mind in that moment of things that you hope will not happen, the things that you know you need to do. And it really was a matter of about 20 seconds where I had to make a lot of decisions and think through a lot of different things. But I was able to get the airplane back under control by engaging a backup system that we have on the airplane. And I will tell you, that was just this incredible sense of relief of like, okay, I've at least survived this part. You know, I, I knew I still had an hour to figure out like, is my airplane going to even make it all the way back home? You know, am I eventually going to have to eject or land this airplane? What is going to happen? But in that moment, I was incredibly relieved to be not plunging to the ground anymore and at least climbing up from Baghdad. So, you know, when I refer to that moment, I never imagined something like that would happen to me, especially being a young wingman new to a unit. You know, it's just, it's nothing you could fathom. But I feel like every hard thing that I've ever done in my life from learning how to fly that Cessna to the stress that I was put under as a basic cadet at the Air Force Academy, all of those things eventually led me to that one moment of being able to perform under pressure, to make decisions under extreme stress, to be able to operate within an incredibly risky environment to be able to do all those things and take action, even when I was scared, you know, even in this most yeah. terrifying moment. That's the idea, right? That we do all these hard things so that we are ready for that one big hard thing. Yeah, that is incredible. Thank you for sharing that. There's this 
sort of subtle piece to the way you tell the story in the book, manual reversion, right? That's what the, the backup system is? Yes, that's so, the backup system. All right, good. I learned something from this book. Lots of things. In the book, you tell this story that you had previously been at a bar or something and had heard somebody else who had flown something in manual reversion tell you some story about it. And in the moment, you had this sort of vision flashback to this thing you'd heard somebody say. Yeah. And that stood out to me so sharply that there was, my story is not nearly as dramatic or intense or personally risky as, as what you're saying, but there was this moment when I was a brand new attending and I was out by myself and I had to perform for the first time by myself a cricothyrotomy, like in front of the neck surgical access. And I'm going to skip a lot of the details. The equipment faltered and failed in a pretty spectacular way. And I had this flash vision of this story. Somebody had told me about this strange way to rig up a transtracheal jet ventilator system between like half of this component and this thing. And if you screw it in upside down and tape it together, it kind of works. And I'd never done it. And this person was essentially, his heart had just stopped. And I had this vision of this thing I'd heard about once and sort of rigged it up and got it together. And we ended up saving this guy's life. And I remember being like, wow, I wonder where that came from. And then sort of not thinking about it again for a long time. Since then, I've come to think more and more about this idea of the way we tell each other stories and the way the human brain is designed to process stories and how many people have some version of this conversation, right? How many folks go through these life or death harrowing moments or these intense pressure moments and the thing that unlocks it is some strange sentence that somebody said to them earlier in life that they filed away back in there. So I have two sort of branching questions about this, which one, now that you've been through that piece of it, what do you think about receiving stories like that? And then the other one is now that we sit on more of the teaching side, how do we tell stories that stick with people like these depth charges that are going to go off in 20 years and help them do something? Because there's all of this knowledge about what right looks like or even what survivable looks like that's coded in this thing that that we rely on that I'm not sure I know how to do in a consistent structural way. Does, it, does that yeah. question even make sense? Oh, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, it's amazing what you remember in these moments. Yeah. For me, you know, I I also had an hour to fly the airplane home. There were a lot of thinking time <laughs> then, but through the fear and through the stress, despite all of that, those stories somehow came to the forefront. And you're absolutely right. It was in the bar on a Friday night and one of the pilots from that had flown in Desert Storm had come in. He had been a prisoner of war. He had, you know, been in a unit that had lost pilots and he just kind of was sharing stories, conversation in a way that really connected. It was kind of standing around as this young pilot thinking, well, nothing like that's ever going to happen to me, but these are really cool stories. And I just remember how he talked about other pilots and how they reacted and, and what they did and how they remained calm and composed and the things that they did. I also remember some of the books that I read about it, and they talked about pilots in Desert Storm and flying in this backup emergency mode, how it was so exhausting and so tiring and how they did it and the different techniques that they had. I remembered all of those things. So it was, you know, those pilots weren't with me that day over Baghdad, but those stories were absolutely there and they were at the forefront of my mind. They were things that I remembered. They absolutely helped me get back safely. 
which is part of the reason I decided to write the book because I felt like those stories had such an impact on me. Like, what if I hadn't heard those stories? I don't even know. I think it's just, I love that people will feel that have the courage to share stories that maybe even share mistakes or weaknesses or like, we didn't do this right, but I want you to know so you do it better the next time. Like, I just love that. And I thought, you know what? Those stories had an impact on me. Don't I then have a responsibility to share the stories that I learned? I don't want anybody to get hit with a missile over Baghdad. That's terrifying. But I do want to pull from some of those lessons. And that was a big part of it. I think, especially teaching at the Air Force Academy, to answer your second question, the one thing that really connected with cadets, I mean, there's a lot going on in their minds. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of workload. But if I could share something through a story that connected with them in a very human way, I found that it resonated and they remembered it a whole lot better than just kind of outlining steps or procedures. Same thing when I taught the cadets how to fly down at the airfield. Yes, there are checklists that you have to remember verbatim, word for word. But if I could give them a story about how that one day when I had that one emergency and how those steps actually worked to save my life or save somebody else's life, then like when that moment of stress happens, they'll actually, it allows it to come closer to the forefront of their mind. So I think stories are incredibly important. I think especially when you connect with people on a very human level, I think there's something to be said about creating connections that allows you to remember things when you need it most, when the stress is on, when you're feeling overwhelmed, when that adrenaline is flowing, and somehow those stories come in. Absolutely. Just absolutely on so many aspects of that. That question, which I also ask myself from so many of the cases that I've been through about what if I hadn't heard that story, right? Like what would have happened in that case, right? Certainly like that person probably would have died that I was working on, but also like that moment became a pivotal moment in the story I tell myself about who I am, right? Because I became the person that could rescue a thing from that circumstance. And that's the story I would tell myself when I was deep in a whole other times, right? Well, I've been through this, I'm going to get through that, right? So they have these incredible ripples through our lives, right? And you tell those stories to the other people, you're continuing those ripples on to the next generation, to the generation beyond that. And there's this very amazing... It's almost like the like a version of the Maori concept of like faka papa, right? Like we are the culmination of our ancestors' training moving through us, and today is the sun shining on us, and tomorrow it will be on somebody else. And there's this this lineage effect to it from that. The other thing about that that gets me so much is the how that happens, right? Because there's the internal component, the story I tell myself about myself, the, the listening to it, the the generating of that action under stress. And this is a weird thing to say, but there's also the fact that there was a bar on a Friday night, right? <laughs> I was that, relaxed. It didn't feel like a great. classroom. <laughs> which is amazing. And, and there was a system that had created a way for juniors and seniors to get together in low stress scenarios to share knowledge outside of the normal patterns, right? And that is outrageously important, I think. We actually say that some of the best learning goes on in the bar on a Friday night. Because I think it's relaxed, it is comfortable, there's less rank involved, maybe less ego involved, and there's something about just being able to share the story and, you know, maybe you can share something that 
is maybe more of a failure or a mistake, but you can share it in a funny way. You know, you have, you can kind of, I don't know, we tend to poke fun at some of the worst things that we do and the worst mistakes that we make, but you know, it just is a way to like, go. all right. You know, it's always like we start the night with stories, like who's got a good story. And uh, it's kind of a way to also fess up to some of the mistakes that you made in a very kind of open laughing way. And it's just a, I don't know, to me, like just connecting with a lot of the people that had been there before me who had the experience that, you know, I didn't have yet and just trying to let it soak in. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you actually remember those things, you know, to think about being hit, airplane plunging to the ground. And yet somehow these stories are seeping in. Like, I remember it, like time slows down to allow that story to come forward in my brain. Like, it's just, it's amazing. There's this other really cool feature of this kind of universe where we're telling each other stories about this, right? Which is the sense that like, there's not like, who isn't in that room, right? You don't have reporters in that room. You don't have people that don't fight life or death in that room, right? Because you don't have to explain why you're laughing about somebody dying or almost dying because you can't explain that if you're not already part of that space. Right. I think I didn't appreciate that quite as much when I was just starting. I don't think I realized how important that was. And and now I actually think that's one of like the most amazing things we have is to create spaces where you can not only tell within your own community or communitas, but tell across that. Right. And that's sort of the part of the whole mission of the Mission Critical Team Institute that that I'm fortunate enough to work for is that we create spaces where you can jump into rooms where even if you don't really understand exactly the language, right? Like I'm I'm not going to leave this conversation having learned how to fly a plane, right? But I am going to leave it understanding like, well, okay, like Kim gets it and she knows that I get it. And we can have this weird conversation about storytelling that like sort of transcends our universes around this. And to create those spaces and to share that knowledge is to harness the suffering that we've all gone through and change it into something deeply meaningful for the people that come after us. That's absolutely it. It's taking some of the really hard things that we've done and some of those really, I would say, painful experiences and and sharing them with others so that the next generation, the next group of pilots that comes through can learn from it. Every fatality that we have in a unit is part of a investigation, a safety investigation, where it, the purpose is not to get anyone in trouble. The purpose is solely to come up with the safety aspect of what could we do differently? Like what did potentially the pilot do wrong? What did the equipment do wrong? But how can we learn from it? And that's a critical aspect. I mean, they're hard to read. And a lot of times there'll there'll be video of, of the accident and it's very powerful from a learning standpoint. And I, I think having lost friends and having lost pilots along the way, I think if there's one thing that we try to pull is the good of like, what can we learn from this so that that doesn't happen to anyone else? Yeah. I think we tend to say that as, you know, suffering is a fuel that we can't afford to waste in some sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And And I can't imagine what that's like to lose a, a teammate in the setting of that. Right. I think it's, we struggle with it when it's enough to lose patience and to to see our teammates burn out. But that commitment to not wasting that suffering is, I think, part of the deepest answer I've found for how to handle the life and death of everything that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I struggle sometimes with how to 
explain some of this to folks who are just starting on this path, right? And I, I try to go backward and ask myself, what would somebody have been able to tell me that I might have actually understood looking backward when I was just starting this? Does that strike any chords for you? Like if you look backward at like, you know, the more junior versions of yourself, like what could you have understood from this before hitting some of this suffering? I think when I look back kind of to the earlier days of myself and I think even wanting to be a fighter pilot and the excitement and thrill of being a pilot, you know that threat and the risk is always there. I think you just don't want to believe it or you think you're going to be invincible and you're all young and invincible, you know, and then reality hits. And I think, sadly, we've all seen it often enough that is part of what we do. But I think starting out, it's just, it's hard to put people in that that perspective of the things sure. that you will see throughout your lifetime, that you will see and experience throughout your career. And so I think the best thing we can do is share our stories and share our experiences so that they're better equipped when it happens. And then I also think that when it does happen, it is the responsibility of the more senior amongst a group to help the less experienced, the newbies on the team to help them deal with some of that stress and and how do you get through it? How do you get back up in the air again? How do you, you know, how do you sure. deal with that stress, the the loss and all of those things? So I don't know how you can prepare for that. It's almost like you can't. I don't know. I think that's one of those things. It is just really hard to envision what it will be like. And then that's where I think we have a responsibility to have each other's back and support yeah. each other and and talk to each other and be just kind of create that safe space that you're talking about where there isn't blame or shame and we can just openly have these conversations, which is hard to do in these environments of very high-performing teams. Right. That is so much easier said than done, right? You, you read all this stuff about building psychological safety in teams and how much that maps onto like the corporate world, which is a very different universe than like, yeah. you know, what we're discussing in some sense. But we talk a lot in the mission critical universe about this idea of of eldership, about becoming an elder in the community. And I promise I'm only including me and not you in that statement. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate like, that. <laughs> absolutely. But the fact that at some point go from being an outsider to an insider in the community and you cross that threshold where you can't go back and you can't really explain and you're you know, you're now part of that. And probably you you go through this transition from being in some ways an operator to a leader and in some things, and there's a different set of identity crisis and and challenge and and joy that comes with all of that. And then at some point, what you're describing happens, and you start thinking about becoming an elder in the community, right? The one who guides the newbies through that first thing, right? For me, I think about it as, you know, the first time somebody does CPR on somebody, right, and they feel the person's rib break underneath their hands, and they, you know, they they go through that sense and. You know, you know they're going to have nightmares that night. They're going to go through all the stuff that you did, and and you sort of take them aside and you welcome them into part of the brother and sisterhood of folks that have done this thing, and that sense of eldership about learning how to guide those conversations, even if you're not the technical leader of the group or you're not the hierarchical leader of the group. I don't know. I, I think there's so much in there. I think that's a real open piece for me at the moment is thinking about how to do that better and differently. I don't even know if I have a real formulated question for you for that one. No, I will. I will just say it. It, yeah. it lets me think about, or it helps me think about the, you know, some of the first times where I deployed to combat, 
And especially when we went into Iraq in 2003, because it, it felt very different in terms of a deployment where now the threat is much higher, the risk is much higher. We're kind of waiting for the precipice of war. You know, we're all sitting around wondering what's going to happen. How are we dealing with this? And our squadron commander, all, he pulled us into a room and he said, look, if you plan on flying, then you need to write letters home to your family so that if you don't make it, I have a letter to give to your family. And that was like, whoa, like talk about putting things into a bit of a yeah. reality check. But after he left the room, there was kind of this sense of like, from the pilots who had flown in combat before, the pilots who had been in Desert Storm, and they were kind of like, we just sat and talked about what it was all about. And they just kind of shared with us some of their thoughts, you know, and, and just how to deal with kind of this un sense of unknown that was out there. I even remember the first time we got rocketed, where we had an incoming, actually a missile attack, where we had an incoming missile to the base. And of course, we were all nervous. I mean, there's alarms going off, everybody's throwing on their chem gear and trying to get ready for this incoming attack. And it's like, you know, you'd trained for it, you'd practice for it, you know, everybody's doing their buddy checks. One of the, our leaders at the time came around and just, he like just put his hand on everybody's head, kind of a quick little pat, looked us in the eyes. Can't really hear because the gas mask's on, but he's essentially just trying to tell us it's going to be okay. There were just moments of like yeah. that, of the reassurance from the people who had been through it before. I think that calmness and how they handled it really helped the rest of us just kind of get in the right mindset and the right space so that we were then ready to go perform our mission, right? It wasn't just about making us feel good. Like there was a point of, hey, we got to be able to do our jobs despite all this kind of fear and risk and threat and unknown. But I, I think you do have a responsibility to share that, to help other people that are going through those tough times. I think that's whether you're a on the paper leader or just, you know, leading from your experience as an elder. I think it's a responsibility that we all have. Yeah. We were talking about this a little bit before we turned the, the, the mic on, but it's like, I never thought I would write a book about anything about this. Like, I never thought I would share most of these stories. I thought they would just sort of like hold on to them and like, you know, honestly, like take them to the grave and not really talk about them to anybody ever again. But I think that this is part of that, right? I think this is part of the responsibility of you know, if you're a human that ends up accumulating some of these stories, like part of your job is to tell them as hard and crazy and weird as that feels a lot of the time. But yeah, author was not on my list of goals. Totally. It was just nowhere in my cross check at all until I was actually teaching a class at the Air Force Academy and one of the other instructors sat in on my class and we walked out and he said, Kim, you need to put those stories in a book. And I was like, haha, you know, just kind of laughed it off. And he said, no, I'm serious. And I was like, uh, I, you know what? I'm not an author. Like that's, that's not really my thing. And he said, well, good. I'll have your first chapter before the Christmas holiday. <laughs> I was like, what? So that's how I started writing my book was by, you know, getting a little push of like having to put it in the stories. And I'll, I'll be real honest. I thought I'd write it, but I wasn't sure that I would have the courage to publish it because like you said, sure. like it feels very vulnerable. It put, it feels very risky to put all those things out there. And then I kind of had this realization of like, but this is what my message is all about. It is about having the yeah. courage to do these hard things to help others. And if my message in some way can help one person when they're doing one hard thing, like then it's worth it. And that's the really, I just try to look at it from that perspective. Amazing. Kim, thank you for all of this. I have like 
six more days worth of questions. I have all these thoughts about like- I know, I feel like we could go on for a long time. (laughs) Like, how do you apply a wingman culture to swarm teams when they don't know each other? I have so many questions about this. I'm going to have to like rope you into a round two at some point. But before we close out, I want to offer you the chance to issue a challenge to anybody listening to this. Maybe they are more on the elder side of the universe. Maybe they're more on the junior side of the universe. Whatever it is, what do you want them to do differently after listening to this conversation? What do you want them to try? Well, I think one of the things that I have had time to reflect on now that I'm an elder, that I've had time to reflect on now, especially since retiring and and looking back on my career and having time to reflect as I realized looking back, you know, there were many times where I had to do hard things. And if I'm honest, I was scared in those moments. I may have been excited, you know, whether it was going to the Air Force Academy or taking off on an airplane, whatever it was, there were moments where, you know, I was fearful. I felt scared because of the challenge. But I think what I also have realized is that fear is a very normal reaction. And we all tend to face fear in some way, whether it's, you know, fear of failure, fear of not meeting expectations, fear of change, fear of the unknown, I could go on. We all can feel fear in that way. And it is really about what we do in those moments that matters the most. It's about being afraid and feeling that fear and feeling that nervousness and worry and then doing it anyway. To be able to do it anyway, you have to put in the work, you have to put in the preparation, you have to be able to commit to being ready for those difficult moments. But my challenge to you is that the next time you feel that fear, that worry, that doubt in yourself is to take action, to do it anyway, to have the courage to step up and take action even when you feel that fear. It is also the challenge to put in the work to make sure you're ready for that moment. Absolutely. Kim, thank you just so much. I genuinely, genuinely appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. And if you're listening to this, go out and read Flying in the Face of Fear. It is amazing. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.